0: You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. We, uh, we're gonna take a little, well, we have a little break between preaching series. As you know, we finished Ecclesiastes last week and next week we're gonna start our fall series in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, which I think is gonna be great. Today, we're gonna look at these two chapters in Hebrews, Hebrews three and four, and here's why. I think uh, most of us came in here today feeling kind of weary, as, as Todd mentioned. The last couple of years have worn us out in ways that we're aware of, but I think probably also in lots of ways that we underestimate. And the thing is, is that when we think about rest, we're typically thinking of it on the surface of our lives. Like we need a nap or vacation, or just some relief from the pressures we're feeling in everyday life? Yeah, who wouldn't want that? I would take all of that. But I also think that there's an issue that goes much deeper. This is what I wanna get at today. Our weariness that we feel is deeper than just tiredness. And therefore, the kind of rest we need is a deeper kind of rest, soul rest. And that's what Hebrews three and four are about. Uh, The original audience who would have received this letter, which is really like a, a sermon or a collection of sermons, these were mostly Jews who had believed in Jesus, but they were on the verge of giving up. Religious persecution, cultural pressure was wearing them out. I think sometimes they just wondered if it would be easier to give up, just to go back to their old life. I think sometimes we wonder the same kind of thing. Maybe not if we, if we could go back to our old life, but maybe we just wish we could kind of have some a more comfortable version of Christianity than the Bible calls us to. As you will see, any life that we would choose for ourselves is shallow rest. The good news of Hebrews three and four is that Jesus offers us deep down rest, rest for our souls. And so we're just going to ask three questions and answer them from the text today. First, what is this rest that he's talking about? What keeps us from it? And how do we experience this rest? All right, what is the rest that Hebrews 3 and 4 is talking about? This will be a little bit different. We're not going to walk through all of these verses. There's a lot of them. Uh, The key to understanding these two chapters, I think, is to see that he's telling the whole story of redemption through the lens or the theme of God's rest. And so we need to back up and look at the whole storyline. In Hebrews 4.4, he takes us back to creation by saying God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He's quoting Genesis 2, so let me just read that to you. End of Genesis 1 says, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Which so mean, he was satisfied with it. And then in chapter two, it says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. What does it mean that God rested? He's not tired. He doesn't need like some downtime. He's God. It just means that he was satisfied with the work. The work was complete. The word rest here literally means ceased. He stopped his work of creation. These ideas of completeness, satisfaction, they tell us something about the way the world was meant to be. As created beings, we were meant to feel God's pleasure and delight, and we were meant to delight in him and to enjoy all of the good gifts that he's given us. Genesis 2.15, you see what this looks like. There's another word for rest here. So when it's talking about God, it it was to cease. The other word for rest means like to settle in. You see it in Genesis 2.15. God took the man and he put him in, rested him in, settled him down in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And so Adam and Eve had work to do, but they worked from a place of rest. It wasn't toilsome in any way. It was a happy stewardship of the blessing and abundance of gifts that God had given them. Think of like kids sorting out candy on Halloween night, right? That's work, isn't it? There's an accounting of inventory, an organization of product. There's trade and commerce happening there. There's governmental oversight. I'm going to make sure little brother doesn't get talked into trading his Snicker bar for a Tootsie Roll, right? That violates, that's a monopoly of sorts. We don't do that. None of that feels like work to the kids, right? It feels like fun, doesn't it? But it is work. Blessing has rained down upon them from the neighbors. And now they have this empire to steward. That was life in the garden. Tim Mackey says that on the seventh day, God stopped from his work and he enters into creation like a king enters into a temple to rest and rule. And he creates the humans and he invites them to come and rest and rule with him that's how the world was meant to be that's how the world will be someday and in between those times we live in a fallen world and so adam and eve instead of enjoying all the things god had given them believed the lie that somehow life would be better if they could pursue it on their own terms and so they disobeyed god and when they did their fellowship with god was broken they ran and hid from him that work became toilsome, God says this, cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat it until you return to the ground. That's not good news. Rest has turned into toil and weariness. God did not abandon them there. He, He began a plan to restore them. his rest. And we see that plan unfold largely through the nation of Israel. So that begins with Abraham, but quickly moves along to a time in which Israel is enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. That's a picture of of toil and unrest. God raises up Moses, delivers them out of Egypt and promises to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. You already know how I feel about honey. We talked about that. It's biblical. just want you to see that. It's it's the land of Canaan, and Canaan is described as a land of rest. Between Egypt and Canaan, they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. It's probably like a 10 10 to 12-month trip, but they wander for 40 years because of their disobedience. God continually led them and provided for them, but they continually grumbled against Moses and against God. God. And all of this rebellion and grumbling comes to a climax when they get right up to the land of Canaan. They're not in it, but they're right up next to it on the border. They're about to go in and, but the land's inhabited, right? They can't just walk in and be like, hey, uh, got some bad news, bad news for you, good news for us, but this is our land. Yep. God gave it to us. So I need you to get your stuff together. And you know, I don't want any tension here. Obviously, it's not going to happen like that. They're going to have to take the land by force. God commands them to conquer it. And so what they do is they send 12 spies into the land to see what they're up against. So the spies go, and they come back. And when they come back, 10 of the spies say, I don't think it's going to work. The cities are fortified and there are some dudes over there who are big, big, large, like a lot of time in the gym, these guys, big dudes. And the other two spies are like, yes, that's all true, but we can do it because God promised it and he's with us. We can totally do this. And so the people, like we do, believe the majority report and they're undone by it. When you read the story in Numbers, it says they cried and wept, they grumbled, and they said, we wanna go back. No lie, they tried to remove Moses from leadership and elect a new leader who would take them back to Egypt. (laughs) That is crazy. And the consequence for their madness and sin is God says, this generation, these people will not enter into my rest. They won't go into Canaan. Hebrews 3 and 4 mentions this consequence like four times. So that story became a symbol of rebellion. Hundreds of years later, King David quotes this story And then Hebrews 3 quotes King David talking about this story. And so where David talks about is in Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 says this. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This is a call to worship, an invitation to God's rest, to be the sheep of his hand. And so David was saying, hey, just as God spoke to that generation in the wilderness, he's still speaking to us. And then Hebrews is saying basically the same thing. He was speaking to them. He was speaking to the people of David's day. And then Hebrews 4.1 says, the promise of rest still stands. Verse nine, there remains Sabbath rest for the people of God. Okay, so creation, fall, redemption through Israel, through King David, all of it is moving us along to Jesus. Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. That's a big topic, big concept, but it taps into creation and the way that life was meant to be in this world. The rest and rule of God with his people, that's the kingdom of God. And when the kingdom, the kingdom will come in full, God's rest will come in full, but until then, he says we can enter into it now. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and you will find rest for your souls. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, because I'm gentle of heart and lowly, and find rest for your soul. I know we're cruising through a storyline here, but I don't want you to miss that that invitation is live. Like you came in here weighed down and, and heavy hearted today. You can leave with deep down soul rest. When we were singing that first song, there's a line in there that says, ponder anew what he could do if with his love he befriends thee. I just think our hearts need to be captured and refreshed by that. What could God do? What could my life be like if, if I really let it sink in that with his love he has befriended me, that I can come to him and find rest in him? The imagery of the yoke is pretty great. So a yoke, you may know, because a lot of you have agricultural backgrounds, I know. Um, a yoke is just a piece of equipment that an ox wears or really two oxen would wear that distributes the weight across their shoulders and just makes the work of plowing the fields easier and more fruitful. And so when Jesus says this, he's implying that we are all in some way under a heavy yoke. We have set out to build a life on our own terms and in doing so, we've yoked ourselves up with something. The love of money, the fear of man, the need for control, trying to be good enough, and we could just go on and on. And Jesus says, yeah, that... That's how people live under the curse of sin. Yoked up to all kinds of other stuff. Come to me and learn how to live in a way that's not burdensome, but light. Do you see the connection to life in the Garden of Eden? Jesus isn't taking away work. He's inviting us into fellowship with him so that we can learn to work and to live in a way that we are doing it from a place of rest. That's the rest Hebrews three and four is talking about. It involves a relationship with God in which we enjoy his favor, steward his good gifts, and all of that is possible only because of Jesus. If I had to boil it down just to one simple phrase, I would say that true rest Deep down, soul rest is being satisfied with God. Not someday, but right now in our everyday lives. So what would keep us from that? Who wouldn't want to be satisfied with God? Why why would we not enter into this rest? That's the second question. And Hebrews 3 and 4 is pretty straightforward about the answer. He says, what kept them... And what keeps us from experiencing God's rest is unbelief. In the middle of chapter three, this is where he quotes Psalm 95. It's about the rebellion in the wilderness. And then later in verses 16 through 19, he gets to the bottom of the issue. He gets to the root of the problem. And what he does is he asks three questions using the language of Psalm 95, and then he answers those questions in his own words. And I want you to look at it. Hebrews 3, verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient? All right, so you've got these three words, rebelled, sinned, disobedient. And then in verse 19, he wraps it all up. He gets to the bottom of the matter. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. He's not talking about believing that God exists. Israel believed that God existed. How could they not? They had seen him at work for 40 years, up close and personal. That's not what he's talking about. So what is he talking about? What is the nature of their unbelief? It was dissatisfaction with God and his ways. A refusal to believe that he was with them and that he was directing them through his word. And so they grumbled. They didn't want to have to depend on God all the time. They didn't, they were afraid of what obeying God's commands would cost them. They seemed impossible. And so they grumbled. Now, it's easy for us to look back and be like, stupid Israel. But I think we need to realize that it's really difficult to detect unbelief in our own hearts. For starters, it it grows over time. It doesn't happen all of a sudden. Think about the way a lake freezes. It doesn't happen like that. There are layers of cold and ice that set in. And in the same way, our hearts grow hard toward God over time through many little experiences of discontentment and disobedience. What makes it even more deceptive is that when we're talking about unbelief, we're not usually talking about belief at the level of like what we say. You know, like when we do the profession of faith, we all say that. We're actually talking about how we live our lives, what some call our functional beliefs. So a simple example, you can say you believe in prayer, you can know how to pray, you can tell somebody, I'll pray for you. You can do all of that and then actually not really pray that much. Why is that? Well, because our functional beliefs are that we're pretty self-reliant and self-concerned. And you might say, no, that I don't think that's it for me. I think I'm just busy and forgetful. And I would say, yeah, that's why it's hard to detect. Nobody wants to admit that they live in such a way as if they don't need God. So we're just busy and forgetful. That's what makes it so hard. You see how easily we just self-justify all the time? I think Israel had that same struggle. So, we could illustrate this with almost any sort of belief or commitment that you have. The point is this: there are gaps. Big gaps sometimes between what we say and how we live our lives. Israel said they believed in God and that he was taking them to the promised land. And they felt it. I mean, they were committed when Moses came down from the mountain and told them, "Here's all the stuff that God wants you to do." You know what they said? All together, somehow they choreographed it, they made it a song, I don't know, but all together they said, "We will do all that He has commanded us." They were so pumped, so all in. But then their beliefs were tested in the wilderness, and they grumbled. And their grumbling tells the true story, doesn't it? They can say whatever they want, but their functional beliefs are that they don't want to trust God and to walk in his ways. And over time, they drifted far from God. Chapter three, verse nine and 10. God says, they put me to the test and they saw my works for 40 years, but they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. The concern of Hebrews is that you and I would say we believe in Jesus, but in our actual lives grow cold toward Him in our heart. Unresponsive to His Word. Unwilling to admit that we have so much need and throw ourselves upon His mercy. What does that have to do with rest? Good question. Good question. I think the gaps in our lives point to the reasons that we're so weary. If you think about it, the gaps represent all the ways that we're trying to build a life on our own terms instead of trusting God. Now, if rest is found in Christ, being satisfied with God, then any way that we try to build a life apart from God will always be not only unsatisfying but incredibly wearisome. Your soul is meant to live in a state of harmony with God, with others, with creation itself. But instead, it's it's always managing, trying to deal with this tension between what we say and what we how we actually live, that disharmony. It's exhausting. And what I'm trying to say is, we'll never find rest until we're willing to admit that it's not just about our circumstances. I'm not just weary because things are crazy in the world. Jesus actually lived in some pretty crazy circumstances. From the moment of his birth until his death, he was wanted dead. That's stressful, I think. You're like, well, that's Jesus. Yes, exactly. Peter says he lived a life so that we would follow in his steps. He shows us that there's a way to live from a place of rest in the midst of a chaotic world. And we'll never get there if we just keep blaming our weariness on our circumstances. We've got to admit that our weariness has something to do with our hearts, with unbelief. We don't just need a vacation, although I'll take a vacation. We need rest for our souls. How do we get it? How can we experience that? Well, verses 12 through 14 give us some application It seems random at first, but then you can see why he's giving it to us. Look what he says, verse 12, chapter three. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's so hard to see the gaps in our own lives, isn't it? You know who can see them? your friends. Like, man, it is so obvious to them. I can't tell you how many times Debbie has said to me, pointed out something in my life. And my immediate response is like, what? No, I'm not like that. And we'll argue about it for a little bit. And eventually her trump card is like, well, why don't you just call Kendall and ask him? <laughs> and so I'll call Kendall or I'll see him in the office like, hey, Debbie said I'm like this. But I mean, like, what do you? And he's like, yep, definitely. That's exactly how you are like, I can't, that's it. I have to concede at that point, right? I can't see, and it goes both ways. It's not just bad stuff. A lot of the good things that I know about myself, I only know because my friends have encouraged them in me. And so we need community, friends who exhort and encourage one another. That's what he's saying. That's why our mission statement as a church is to help each other believe and apply the gospel in every area of life. We mean that. That's what our whole structure is for gospel communities. We want that to happen on the ground. How often do we need to do this? Pointing out the gaps, pointing people to Jesus. How often? Well, he says, exhort one another every day. If you exist in a day that you call today, then this is when you need community. All the time. Now look, if you don't want to just talk about this and you want to really do it, then here's what I would say in your gospel community or in your D group this week, walk in before the leader can get going, just say, hey, I would love to take like five or 10 minutes and I would love for you guys to help me see the gaps in my life. If you're new, don't do that. That'll be, I don't know. know. One gap is you think we know you. That's one gap. (laughs) The group won't wanna do it. You'll see, because it'll feel uncomfortable to them. It'll feel like we're not being supportive in some way. And so you'll have to remind them of what the stakes are. Guys, this is to keep our hearts from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Please, let's do this. What what is it? I would like to hear back from some of you how this happens in your groups this week, just so I know you're listening. Hebrews 3 is about what keeps us from rest, true rest. Hebrews 4 is about how we can enter into it, how we can experience it in our everyday lives. If what keeps us from rest is unbelief, then how we experience it is belief, faith. Look at Hebrews 4, 1. Therefore, while the promises of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen, for we who have believed enter that rest. You see the transition? They didn't enter in because though they heard the good news, they didn't respond to it with faith. But we who have heard the good news about Jesus and responded in faith have entered into that rest. And it's just important to note that in the Bible, faith is not a matter of what we say. It includes that, but it's really a combination of like love and trust and obedience. And so, if you want to enter into God's rest, you want to experience true rest, then my advice is that you do whatever stirs your affections for Jesus, whatever compels you to walk in his ways, whatever that do, put that stuff at the center of your life if you want to have real rest. Chapter four ends with a final warning and a final word of encouragement. The warning is about being exposed and the encouragement is about being covered. We'll end with with these. Verse 11 is the warning. Let's read it. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You hear the Genesis language. Adam and Eve's eyes were open. They knew they were naked. They ran and hid, but but there was nowhere to hide because all creatures are seen by God. These verses say that God's word exposes, can, can, can show us the gaps in our lives. His word is like a surgeon's scalpel. It cuts us open, dividing joint and marrow. It lays us bare. God sees everything about you. God knows you better than you know yourself. That's scary, isn't it? To be laid bare, I mean nobody if you were naked right now, you would feel it, you know you'd be scared, nervous, something. These verses are saying that God has has so opened us up, laid us bare that we have no hope of standing on our own. These are verses about judgment. The word exposed is the same word that like uh, it would be used for a soldier when he would stretch back the neck of his enemy and cut his throat. That's why you get that double-edged sword imagery in there. That's, that's our plight before God. We should be cut off. God's word judges and destroys those who turn against him. That's what he's saying. And so you have God's wrath or God's rest. Those are the options. And so that's why the author is so urgently pleading that we hold fast to Jesus. Look at verse 14. This is the encouragement. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The priest brings people near to God. And so to give up on Jesus would be, to, would be to be cut off from God's presence. But to believe in Jesus would be to be covered by his righteousness. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So Jesus is transcendent, he passed through the heavens, but he is also approachable, he sympathizes with our weakness so we can come to him. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this is how we experience true rest. We trust in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. We draw near to God with confidence. We receive from him mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Wrath or rest. We deserve wrath. (laughs) But because of Jesus, we can have rest. We deserve to be cut off, but instead, He was cut off in our place. When Jesus was hung up on the cross, He was naked, exposed, utterly laid bare, cast into cosmic unrest. What's that about? It's about the Son of God taking the wrath of God upon Himself that we deserve because of our sin. And because he does that, we can have his righteousness, his life, his rest. When he had breathed his last on the cross, he said, it is finished. The work is complete. And he entered into his rest. And soon he will return and our rest will be made full. Until then, we live by faith. We come here, we come around the Lord's table, we encourage one another, we remember what he's done, and we put our hope in him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.